Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for the 11th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Home for this series is the New Books Network. Today's topic is creativity and innovation demystified. With me is Nir Bashan, the author of The Creative Mindset, 92 Tools to Unlock the Secrets to Innovation, Growth, and Sustainability. The publisher is McGraw-Hill. Nier is a world-renowned creativity expert who has worked with blue-chip companies like AT&T, Microsoft, EA Sports, and JetBlue, as well as on albums, movies, and advertisements for people like Rod Stewart and Woody Harrelson. Nier has won a Clio Award and been nominated for an Emmy. Nier, welcome to today's show. Hey, thank you, Dan. I, I sound way better when you announce me than I do in real life. Ah, uh, okay, fair enough. Uh, I must say creativity and innovation is a topic dear to my heart. You may not know this, but my uh, father worked for the 3M company for probably some 40 years. Wow. Innovation is, of course, the famous tagline for 3M company. And I remember as a boy, after I bought some stock, going to the annual uh, shareholder meeting. And you come into the building, or at least it did in those days, and you would pass literally table after table of new innovations that 3M had you know, initiated and launched within the past year. And I held on to that when I joined a $6 billion company where one of my duties for the CEO was to be in charge of the annual report. So the first year I got the top prize in the industry, third best cover nationally. The second year I thought I would add a two-page spread on innovations within the company in the past year. Honest to God, near. I had to pull the two-page entry. We had not a single innovation wow. worth talking about wow. in a $6 billion company. Wow. So uh, very sobering, not 3M by a long yeah. stretch of the imagination. Wow. So um, 92 tools. That's a lot. A lot uh, of tools. I don't mean to force you to choose a favorite child or two, but uh, tell me one or two, maybe even three of these you'd really like to serve up for listeners. Yeah, so you know the uh, the book is a prescriptive book. A bit of history on it is that I started about six years ago, and I wrote eighty five thousand words, and those eighty five thousand words were thrown in the trash in the first meeting when I met my agent, uh, who's a wonderful, incredible human being. She owns a a company called Bookends. Um, it's an agency. She's got twenty six or twenty seven book agents that uh, work underneath her, and and sort of, you know, uh, lift up her company. Um, and, uh, Jessica Foss is her name. And so she told me, yeah, throw it away. You need prescriptive tools. You need to have the book organized. And she's like, you got it. It's in there, but you have to have it organized so that people can flip through and get, you know, three, four, five tools. And those four or five tools turned into, you know, 92 of them. Um, so some of my favorite tools in there, uh, to answer your question are, uh, probably how to overcome the self-doubt monster. Um, Dan, that's one that I feel is incredibly crippling. I, I'm 
you know, I, I don't know what, what happened in your past company and, and why you weren't getting, you know, even two pages to write about uh, in terms of innovation, but I have some, you know, I, I would suspect that some of that is related to um, self-doubt. And the other uh, tool that I really like in the book is, you know, fear, overcoming fear. Those two things go hand in hand, fear and self-doubt. Um, and I'm sure that um, in an organization, maybe in your company that you're listening to, you know, on the podcast now, you're having some trouble getting fresh ideas, new ideas, innovation. I'm sure that those two uh, play hand in hand in terms of stopping and stifling innovation. Well, they're, they're both emotional in their orientation. I don't know if self-doubt's an emotion exactly, but it's certainly an emotional state. So uh, we will come back to those. But yes, to go from four or five to 92 means uh, you created a pretty large family there. Yeah. I, I was intrigued when you were talking in the book about left brain and right brain analytical and, and the more creative space. And you made an interesting, interesting comment. You said it's so tempting in business to stick with the analytical space. You even called it alluring. Why is it alluring and why is it more alluring if it's true than being over on the other side of the brain, the more creative side of the brain? A great question, Dan. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I feel that we as a society has valued the, you know, analytical part of the brain uh, over the creative side forever. I think it's it's kind of a day one thing, right? So in my book, I write about how everybody's born creative, everyone, you, me, everybody. And, you know, as we're children, we develop that creativity. We build fantastic castles out of, you know, couch cushions or whatnot. Um, sure. You know, we, we put cardboard boxes are like, you know, uh, the, the best thing a kid has ever, you know, seen, um, much less what's in it. It's just the box is cool. You know, you could do stuff with it. And then we kind of grow up, um, Dan, and we, we start to favor the analytical. So I started to study what happens here. And I, and I use some great researchers in the book some very prominent um, um, doctors at children's hospitals across the country. And what we found was that there's a shift somewhere, uh, right about kindergarten, actually, but there's a shift somewhere that occurs where we're now not encouraged to be creative, but we're encouraged to be analytical. Uh, a teacher asks us a question. Uh, we're in, in the kindergarten. Um, you know, we're drawing something and, you know, the, the tree leaves are purple. And, you know, the teacher says, well, the tree leaves shouldn't be purple. They should be green. And then sure. yeah. you, you can kind of get trained, Dan. You sort of like, oh, okay, cool. They're green. And even in, in a creative activity, you start to, to put an analytical mindset on it. Um, you know, we're in high school. Teacher asks a question. They want the right answer. Uh, I don't know. You, you know, I know you have a PhD and you've sat through a lot of uh, formal education. Um, Far too much. Yes. Yeah. So I, I don't know. Would your experience similar? It was. I mean, I, I grew to, to suspect and resent the fact that I felt that the teacher had a prescribed answer, and that was the one you were supposed to serve up. Yeah. So I got my A's, but I didn't like to go along with that dynamic. And probably a key moment was in grad school where the teacher actually, the professor actually made a comment that we lived in a classless society in America, which I thought was so obviously not true. Oh, boy. And I started to protest, and she just shut me down and I just wrote my term paper, got my A and moved on. I just really couldn't believe how closed-minded that was. Right. And you remember these things the rest of your life, right? You so do. You do. I feel like those scars are really analytical-based scars. And we're sort of, you know, we graduate and, you know, I know you have a, a deep uh, academic background and then you've 
shifted over to, you know, entrepreneurship, uh, uh, consulting and, and doing your own very impressive work. Um, you know, but we're, we're, I feel like we're stuck with those scars. So we still have them, uh, as we, you know, start to work in, in business and we stop to listen to what that side has to say. And, you know, it, it, it tries to get out. There's signs of it everywhere in, you know, I do a fair amount of consulting myself, kind of like you do, um, Dan, and, you know, I'll sit down with an executive or a company. We'll outline some of the goal. And, you know, I can hear, I could see seedlings of this stuff starting to erupt and, yeah. it, you know, they push it down almost like, like hiding an emotion of, of being vulnerable or, or excited or, you know, uh, doubtful or whatever. It, they kind of push it down. And I say, no, 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 that's, that's your innate creativity, your childhood creativity trying to come out. What's it telling you? And let's start listening and, and acting on it. It could be very profitable. And that, that is one of my favorite parts of the book. I, I really do think there is this innate creativity in us. And I think that the time frame you're talking about is a really interesting one. Piget, uh, the famous French psychologist, talks about we make a step change typically around ages six or seven and another one at 11 or 12. Yeah, Those are really vital moments. And I think if we can stay tuned to the person we were then, uh, it's a fabulous opportunity to realize some of that creativity. I admit that when I look around for what might be the culprit, I, I tend to go back to uh, Rene Descartes, the famous French philosopher, who, of course, said at the height of the Enlightenment, I think, therefore I am. Yeah. And I, and I kind of feel like that's the lie we've been telling ourselves in Western culture and business culture for the last 300 plus years that we are these supremely rational beings. So let's just uh, put the knife in, into it and admit that uh, emotions matter a lot because you, you go to chapter eight and you talk about creativity's unlikely personality traits. So what are those three traits? Just give a little bit of a, a summary critique, and then I, I want to explore that a, a whole lot deeper. Yeah, definitely. So, um, and I, and I agree with you, uh, Dan, I think, I think that, you know, our emotional intelligence, um, in terms of creativity is uh, critical. Um, I feel honestly, and maybe somewhat controversially that we've been operating with really only half of our potential. Um, you can extrapolate that to a lot of things, but what I'm most interested in is business. I'm interested in commerce and, in creativity and how commerce helps creativity. And I feel like if we could just help people in business who own businesses or even somebody working on their career, wanting to get to the next level, if we can help them become more creative. I think we're starting to unlock more and more potential. Um, and, and to that point in the, in the chapter, I talk about how humor, uh, empathy and courage are really three things that are, you know, catalyst for changing your mindset from analytics and what we're, you know, what universities and schools are kind of really good at teaching and how to use those three elements to begin the seedlings of creativity. So, so let's take them through each one in turn. Uh, let's start with humor. Of course, I, this is a show about emotional intelligence. So I'm going to drag us into specific emotions. Is there an emotion you think is most pertinent to humor? And one that is the greatest dagger or threat to humor. Yeah, so it's a you know I think that um, I think humor is, is completely underrepresented uh, in uh, in modern business. And you know what I what I particularly like about humor is the opportunities that it you know sort of arise to solve problems differently. 
my my grandfather always yep. said that you know within every joke there's you know an ounce of humor, and uh, I'm sorry within every joke uh, there's an ounce of truth. That was a saying. Sorry, and and you know I think I think he's right. So what happens is when you enable a culture that is um, uh, open to receiving humor, I think you you get some you know emotional space. Uh, for people to understand that, you know, um, failing is perfectly normal and something that happens a lot because you can literally make fun of yourself or the situation. But something very interesting starts to happen, Dan, when you when you frame up uh, problems in your business with humor. What ends up happening is that people, uh, whether they're the employees or co- co-workers or whatnot, start to understand that maybe in this joke and maybe in this humorous way there's an ounce of truth to 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 be found and they start to look at these problems maybe a little bit differently you take a deep breath you kind of relax a little bit and the overwhelming fear to get it right get it right get it right all the time don't fail get it right you know the stomach knots start to loosen a little bit the anxiety starts to wane a bit and i think those are the moments where creativity can start seeping in what what do you think well, no, I absolutely agree. I think humor is important. I think the relevant emotion, therefore, is happiness, which sometimes gets, uh, you know, not the level of respect it needs to have. I was in a conversation with uh, some people who run a company, a management leadership company in Australia just last night, and they were so happy to hear me say that happiness mattered <laughs> in terms of creativity, in yes. terms of, you know, relaxing people, brainstorming to superior solutions more quickly. And you're right. The good joke, you know, carries a punch typically. I mean, I can even just cite Woody Allen saying that happiness makes up in height what it lacks in length. Because huh. it is tough to make happiness last for a long time, including in companies with company politics and bottom line concerns quarter after quarter. But it is so important as a lubricant, as really a license to try to look at something in a more unique way. And to me, the emotion that I think is the biggest uh, danger or risk, if I was to choose one, might actually be disgust. Okay. Because disgust is bad taste, bad smell. It's an aversive kind of rejecting emotion. And, you know, if you got that famous whiteboard sequence where you're all trying to put up ideas on the board, you know, if, if some get, start getting erased or shot down prematurely or people make snide comments, you know, that's rejection. And uh, it's just possible that's going to squelch you know, the, the, the wheels of creativity. Yeah, it hurts. It hurts. Yeah. And, and we don't forget hurting. We of our seven core emotions, five are negative after all, or you might define them as <laughs> negative. So uh, we really hold on to them. You know, this is how nature orients us to yeah, watch we're out interesting creatures. Yeah. Let's move on to empathy. What do you think is the emotion? And I'm asking you to project here. I know this isn't in your book, but is there an emotion you think is most pertinent to empathy and one that you think poses that, that dagger risk for it? Yeah, so on on empathy, the second of what I feel are the three most, um, you know, important uh, creativity, unlikely personality traits, as I call it in the book. I think, um, I think empathy is another one that we don't uh, we don't sort of dive into a lot um, in in business. We tend to think, you know, that we uh, in management give direction and direction gets executed. Um, if that's really the extent of how we think about empathy. Um, but you know, for me, uh, empathy enables teamwork, uh, and collaboration to really take off. What ends up happening is if you are able to 
you know, look at a particular problem or look at a particular goal that you're trying to achieve um, and try to sort of put the shoe on the other foot and really study it from multiple angles, multiple personality angles and multiple uh, emotional angles um, and see what these issues can and may or may not arise in in staff. I think you can you can have a pretty good roadmap on how to use empathy. But not only that, Dan, I think what's really important is to use this to understand what the customer will appreciate and not appreciate. So I Absolutely. break it up into, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So I break it up kind of into an internal empathy, uh, one that's within the company and an external empathy, one outside the, the company or career. Um, and I use those tools to help people understand that, hey, you know, um, just because you think of something in one way doesn't mean that everyone else does. Um, internally and externally, I use it in a way to help you market and position your product or service for the best benefit um, to as many people as possible. Well, I, I love that internal external f- dual focus. I think that's really essential. Uh, you know, you do have to, you know, you know, work together with people and make it happen within the organization. So you yeah. can't be blind to those realities, and you need to understand from their perspective how it could be threatening or unwelcome or how they're going to get a chance to buy in and be, you know, if not the hero, one of the heroes yes. for that initiative. Uh, and then, yes, externally, absolutely. Uh, your customers are going to vary. Uh, you know, so much segmentation is done demographically, yep. but psychographically, I'm afraid it often just comes down to people saying, well, what's their favorite TV show? And in the old days, what magazine did they subscribe to? Right. But I, I think we could get into more deeper emotional profiling as well and get a better sense of things. So that brings me around to, strangely enough, sadness, which is an emotion I think business would almost never leverage. Yep. And yet sadness slows us down. It makes us reflect on maybe what was a mistake. It makes us sensitive to the fact that people can feel isolated or hopeless or helpless in a, in a moment. Yep. Uh, business is about solutions. <laughs> Coming up with solutions. Well, people have problems. Uh-huh. And if you acknowledge their problems, then, geez, you really have a much better chance of getting to their solutions. The emotion, I think, is the dagger here is actually contempt. That uh-huh. you don't respect, you don't trust the other party, you find them beneath you. And if you really think they're beneath you, what's the chance you're going to stoop down to lift them up and really care about getting to, to some kind of outcome that's good for them? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, 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 you know, far too many, I mean, you know, this, you, you've been out there far too many, um, far too many people in business are, are really unfortunately, uh, that way, you know, um, and, and what I think we're missing here is the opportunity for a lot more revenue and, and, and the opportunity to realize profits that weren't there before. And all it really does, uh, all it really takes is just kind of a shift in mentality, whether you're going into a meeting, whether you're going to a, a client, um, call or, or whatnot, um, you know, just that shift in mentality to recognize, Hey, you know what, there's, there's, you know, people in the room who've experienced something significant, maybe in the, even in the last 24 hours, I'll never forget, you know, uh, going into a meeting and pitching hard and preparing for weeks, you know, back when I was, uh, I was running advertising agencies for years and we'd go in there and, oh yeah, you know, really excited. And we would think, Hey, you know, everybody in the room would feel the same way, but you know, sometimes it would go well and sometimes it wouldn't. And we'd always blame ourselves. But, um, you know, I, I, there was a case one time where, you know, we pitched a, a project and the, one of the people in the room just, uh, you know, had a, uh, a loss in the family. 
Um, and we had no idea. And we thought, oh, uh, you know, something sure. that we did that they didn't like. But I, I think it's incredibly important to realize that everybody comes from somewhere and everybody is at in that moment, um, you know, somewhat vulnerable. Um, and it's imperative for us as business leaders um, or, or, you know, even people in our career trying to get ahead to recognize that the person we're talking to on the other line may just have something going on. And for us to have a bit of empathy and an understanding um, lowers that dagger of, you know, contempt, um, because I think it's a altruistic sort of natural thing for us to want, you know, um, for that to happen to us, too. So if we're having some difficulty in this or that part of our lives, we also want the person that we work with to understand, hey, you know, maybe they're not at their A game today. Maybe they're at their B game because of something else going on. Sure. And that's where the small talk becomes big talk, because just possibly in retrospect, take that person who just had a death in the family. Yeah. Uh, if the pitch presentation itself started 15 minutes later, maybe just maybe in some side conversation that might have come out. Right. And may or may not have helped. But th that's why just jumping right into the, you know, the hard, you know, push ahead presentation. You know, I'm not blaming you in the least. These things happen. Uh, I've been there myself, certainly. Yeah. but. Uh, it's why going slow sometimes can allow you to go fast later on. Right. We got one more trait and I uh, don't want to belabor it, but I think it's really important as well. And that's courage. What more can you say about courage? And I know this is a tough exercise, but I'm still playing with this idea of an uh, enabling emotion and a uh, disabling emotion. Yeah. Yeah. I like this, uh, this, this exercise. It's fun. Um, I, you know, so on courage, I feel like um, the over, arching, you know, sort of essence for me, uh, when I talk about courage and creativity is really having the courage to find out what we're doing wrong and to actually try something different or new to fix it. That, that what is what I think is, is an amazing piece of creative courage. Um, you know, something happens, uh, something always happens and really, how we react to it means far more than what, what has happened in the first place. And it takes a bit of courage to look at the issue and, and say, you know what, I've approached it, you know, in this or that way. And maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I should have changed tracks. Um, and to actually try something different to fix it to me is the epitome of creative courage. Well, it all brings to mind one of my favorite lines from The Wizard of Oz when the cowardly lion sings, what puts the hot in Hottentot? Courage. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's humorous. But uh, the emotion I'm actually going to go to is anger. Anger. Because one of the things anger does is it's an approach emotion. And you're trying to break through barriers. You're trying to make progress. You're trying to really control your own destiny. And I do think one of the things that comes up with innovation is you have to have resiliency. Yes. And anger and that grasping to actually control your destiny and make something happen. I think can be quite enabling, even though anger obviously has its downsides. The emotion that I think is the disabling one is fear. And on that note, I'd love to go into what you brought up at the start of this, which was uh, these 92 tools in terms of forcing you to have a favorite. Uh, the first one out of your mouth was self-doubt as uh, a, a risk that could be disabling to getting to innovation. So I want to give you a moment here to dwell on self-doubt, which you also put into, you know, kind of comparison, contrast to complacency. Yeah, definitely. So self-doubt to me, 
creatively is something that has robbed humanity of countless advances simply because somebody didn't feel it was good enough. You know, if you think about that for a minute, uh, Dan, it's pretty depressing, right? So <laughs> what you <laughs> what you have is it's these wonderful ideas that bubble up. Again, for me, it is your childhood creativity trying to get out, right? So you have these wonderful emotions, uh, feelings, thoughts, ideas of this, you know, tied to, to our childhood creativity, our innate ability to create. And you shoot them down. And what we find is the world has been completely robbed of great ideas. I write a little bit about, you know, in the book that, um, you know, some super uh, light bulb that would last, you know, 100 years uh, never came out because the guy who, who kind of invented it thought it wasn't good enough. So he killed it. Um, you know, some teaching technique that that a woman came up with, you know, in, in the high plains of Wyoming. Uh, that would help, you know, kids understand, um, you know, advanced math at age five and six, never seen the light of day because she didn't think it was good enough. Um, our propensity to self-doubt and kill creativity is so dang strong that I think part of the book anchors around undoing years and years of damage um, that we've really done to ourselves. And I think it's incredibly important to recognize um, you know, the, the monster of self-doubt and free ourselves from it um, so that we can contribute better. Sure. Well, we're, we're in, you know, in a company, you're in a social environment. So there are people who are observing, joining in, but, you know, could potentially also you know, block or shoot something down. Uh, I think it's always worthwhile to remember that LeBron James does not make every shot yep. on the court. Uh, they don't all drop, so but he keeps shooting. Yeah, and uh, you know, as long as you got some game, uh, you do have to keep shooting. That's the only way the ball is going to go through the hoop. Um, so it's worth paying attention to. When we're talking about innovation, and I actually discuss design obstacles in my book, Emotionomics. Spend a few pages on that because really, you know, we talked about left brain, right brain, and and feeling and thinking. Uh, but the way the brain is organized or evolved, uh, there's really also a very sensory aspect to the brain, which comes down to when you're maybe designing a literal product, for instance, yeah. or thinking about an experience that you're designing for somebody because they're going to be in an environment and interacting with people and so on and so forth. So what do you think? I mean, it could be war stories. It could be design obstacles you want to talk about. But if we broaden this to sensory, emotional, and rational um, what are some of the obstacles that you see? And then I'm going to mention five in the book uh, and see if you have any comments on them. But let's let you go first and, and see what you want to offer up on this front. I think that we are uh, the, the construct of our current um, mindset being analytical, uh, honed, uh, shaped, and developed over years and years of forceful outside intervention, whether it's school, whether it's, you know, Excel, you know, spreadsheet logic and numbers and data um, have forced us into realizing and, and recognizing that, you know, maybe data and analytics are more important than information. You see it everywhere, Dan, everywhere. And I feel that we the way that we approach it, um, part of the reason I wrote this book is the limiting factor, the most limiting factor in, you know, innovation and creativity. It's us that kills these ideas. Sure. And, and Nir, is there a particular war story? You can leave the names out, the company name out, et cetera. But 
Is there a war story where there really was a a promising idea that just kind of got you know strangled at birth, unfortunately, or somewhere along the way, and, and should have seen the light of day and just didn't? Is there yeah, maybe one of these that stands out for you? Absolutely, one of them uh, that I think is incredibly important is that in the mid seventies, um, Kodak had an engineer working for them, a legendary uh, guy who was really into uh, future technology. And, um, you know, he, he ended up developing the world's first digital camera. I talk about it in the book. Um, and what a better place to do something like that, right, Dan? You know, it's Kodak, like they are in the business of photographs, right. And pictures and all this stuff. And the innovation got shot down time and time again. Um, you know, uh, nobody was ready for it. They were, it's too far out there. Um, I, I quoted some exec. We found a, a quote that somebody at Kodak at the time said that nobody would want to take a, a digital photograph um, when they can have one uh, in in film on, you know, a traditional camera being processed a week later and then an image on paper. Um, they said that nobody would ever want to look at uh, an image that's not on paper. And, you know, we all know how, incredibly ridiculous that type of statement was so systematically the you know worship i would say of the analytical brain um you know there's thousands of these sort of war stories where somebody comes up with a good idea or um you know a a piece of innovation a different way to do something a new structure or or process um and uh it doesn't see the light of day it's it's pretty bad well, you, you had mentioned earlier when we were looking at self-doubt, the opposite side of that coin is unfortunately complacency. And I, I did study this a bit. I wanted to look at the pace of innovation. Yeah. And generally speaking, the larger the company and the longer it's been in business, the more complacent it tends to be in terms of the pace of innovation. There are wonderful exceptions, wonderful, don't get yeah. me wrong. But I think one of the things that happens is really the scale of the business becomes a buffer between the people inside the building or buildings and the people outside. There's such a big universe you're now dealing with that that can really become the superseding reality. When I you know, used to have staff meetings in the early years of my company, we were obviously quite small uh, compared to a Kodak. And I used to say to my staffers, you know, think of us as landing on the beaches at Normandy, uh, but we're always going to stay on the beach. We're not going to Paris. <laughs> Uh, they're going to be shooting at us from overhead, and that's just the reality. Right. Uh, you just do the best you can. There's no comfort level here, and there's not going to be one. So in terms of emotionomics, I had five different issues that I thought sometimes happened to innovations going on within a company. Okay. I'm going to just summarize all five, and then maybe you've got a perspective or one you'd particularly like to chew on because you've seen it happen so often. So one was what I called featureitis. Uh, the new product has too many features to it. Okay. Uh, you know, internal vision, you know, kind of assumed the whole thing and they lost track of what the end user could actually handle. The next one is cost cutting. Someone from operations intervenes and the thing ends up with too few features, including maybe losing a really crucial feature. Uh, the third one I called myopia, where there's a selfish feature or features that serves the company in terms of how it can make money but it doesn't also create a win-win for the customer. Uh, The fourth one I called tunnel vision, totally irrelevant features that are the brainchild, the love child of somebody within the organization with enough pull (laughs) to make it happen. And the last one is simply no vision whatsoever, Uh, purely rational features that have no sensory or emotional payoff. Any one or more of those that you'd like to comment on? 
Yeah, I you know they're they're that's a good list. I, you know that's a pretty um, pretty accurate uh, uh, you know product development type uh, type list. But you know the 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 thing is that um, you know I, I feel like a lot of software development these days is 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 very much like your list, where you know you have people developing software for you know reasons that nobody needs, um, but they've convinced themselves you know, that, that that's what they need to be doing. And, you know, they wonder why nobody's buying the software. So I, I, you know, I completely agree with you. There's, you know, so many, so many failure points along the, the way, uh, when we lose sight of, you know, our innate sort of creativity and our ability to solve problems, um, in a, in a creative way, we, we, we tend to side with what we're familiar and comfortable with. I think all of your list, um, tends to be derivative of, of comfort, whether it's feature packed or feature list, um, you know, however it manifests itself. For me, it feels like, um, like a pretty comfortable construct, you know? Uh, and, uh, what I've noticed time and time again, when, when out consulting or, or speaking in, in that sort of thing is that, you know, nothing really good comes out of a comfortable environment, very much like you're, you're on the beach Normandy story, you know? Uh, when you told your staff, hey, you know, you got to it's going to be uncomfortable for a while. Um, I think that's the best place to say, because that's where creativity can actually start solving problems. Well, I do remember a client of mine in, in the pharmaceutical industry. I got down with the presentation one time and uh, the marketing uh, campaign idea was not so strong and not so well received by the people we had tested. And she said to me uh, and kind of brought the room to a hush. She said, in other words, Dan, we're really good at figuring out what's in it for us and not so good at figuring out what's in it for our customers sometime. <sighs> yeah. And I think everyone knew Isn't that. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, more than a grain of truth to that. But uh, she was the one with the, the guts and the courage to say it. Yeah. So before we run out of time here, I, I can't resist uh, a little name dropping perhaps because you've done work in LA, which would include obviously Hollywood. You've won a Clio. Uh, you've been nominated for an Emmy. Uh, what can you tell us about how creativity works and what we might think of as the, the the absolute hub of creativity, which is L.A. and particularly Hollywood? Yeah, you know, so I worked in uh, in Hollywood for many years. Um, I worked in the music business. I've worked in uh, uh, the film business. Um, and, you know, uh, there there's a lot of creative people in those businesses that have developed um, sort of a, a routine of, of creativity. Um, and, you know, I think they're, they're wonderful things. I think that we can learn a lot, uh, from people who, you know, get up every day, um, you know, spend an hour sort of writing or spend an hour, you know, um, sort of thinking about ideas or mapping out, you know, three phases of, um, you know, an approach to, to a different problem. What you would be surprised at, I think, you know, people who haven't worked with with celebrities or famous musicians and so on and so forth, it's the amount of discipline these people have. Um, not everyone, you know, you hear about the news, you know, on the news every once in a while, you know, about a celebrity who's kind of a hack or whatnot. Um, yeah, but the real problem, yeah. what's that? Yeah, flames out or whatever happens. Yeah, yeah. but, you, you know, by and large, I would say, um, you know, very professional people with an approach to uh, repeatable, enduring creativity. They're um, by and large in touch with uh, what they've learned through their childhood experiences and, and, and that 
childhood creativity and they've applied it to a business. Their chosen business is music and their chosen business is acting or, or whatnot. But you'd be amazed at how much, um, at how much discipline, uh, happened. So what I think is a really good takeaway is not those rare stories that you see, you know, on TV or, you know, the reality star who gets arrested for this or that. Uh, although those are fun and kind of juicy, um, you know, what, what the takeaway is, is the, uh, you know, the, the guy that you see on a movie, who has been on, you know, a couple dozen movies that you've seen, you don't quite know his or her name, but you kind of are like, oh yeah, I've seen that one before, you know? And, oh yeah, you know, those are the tried and true professionals, um, who have made a living of, uh, of enacting creativity. Um, and a lot of the principles that they enact are in my book and it's something that you can use in manufacturing or in medicine or, you know, in far ranging, uh, careers and, and businesses and, um, Part of that's extracted in the book. Sure. Well, it, it sounds like we're talking about courage and resiliency yet again for, for one thing, I must say. So, uh, Nir, I, I'd say our time is pretty much wrapped up here. I want to thank you again for being a guest on my show, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode number 11, Creativity and Innovation Demystified. To check out other episodes, including numbers seven and eight, with both re- both relate to this topic, uh, please do so by going to my website at sensorylogic.com or to the New Books Network website. Uh, you can also check out there my own books and other activities. If you have a follow-up question for our guest today, uh, you can email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. And I will get the question on to Nier for an answer that I will post. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a five-star rating and review on iTunes. Finally, I like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. As we've been talking about creativity and innovation today, I'll end with this quote from the great Albert Einstein. The true sign of intelligence is not knowledge, but imagination. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.